Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta, Yerdina Azband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Yuma, daf pei bet. Uh, that's page 82. We have two important Mishnayot on this daf. They are very much relating to the, I would say, the way we experience Yom Kippur. The first, I'm going to start with the first, Yerdina, you're going to do the second, and then I'll follow up with some at the end. Um, the first is talking about the kids, right? We began talking about the kids and um, on the previous half, Hatinokot, or I don't know, maybe it was a couple of days ago, Hatinokot, Ein Maninotan Biyom Hakipurim, Aval Machanchinotan Lifneshana, Lifneshana time, Bishfil Shiyu Regilin Bemitzvot. So children are not supposed to be fasting. We do not afflict them with the fasts or the other issues of Yom Kippur. But we do train them, right? We educate them to be able to fast. So what that means is that the year before, it says lifnation nav, lifnation time. So that means that from the age of, let's say, 11 and 12 for, for a boy and I guess 10 and 11 for a girl, you start you start getting them ready to be fasters um, so that they should, they should become accustomed to fulfilling the mitzvot. It's interesting that this is presented as such a general statement about mitzvot in general, you know, as opposed to the specific of they get they get used to not eating or or I don't know being self sacrificing for the sake of the mitzvot because perhaps Yom Kippur is the earliest clear sacrifice that one might make for the sake of a mitzvah, namely foregoing food. Um, okay, so the Gemara here talks about exactly what does this mean, and there's a few different possibilities of whether we're gonna you're gonna whether training means you should be fasting and that's a mitzvah to be fasting from the day be- from the year before, or is it a matter of easing one into fasting so that, you know, at the end of the whole discussion here of the Gemara, it says, well, what if you would say, you know, if a kid is usually accustomed to eat breakfast at, and I hear I'm just giving examples by, let's say, 8 o'clock in the morning, so have the kid wait until 9 or 10, right? That's like training for fasting as opposed to practicing fasting in full. And this is, of course, the debate over, over this whole section of the Gemara. Um, just, you know, and then specifically it says over these ages, it's really interesting, I think, the ages of the presumption is that one could begin a healthy child, right? The Gemara is clear to specify we're talking about somebody who is healthy and who is capable. Amar of Huna, Ben Shmona, Uven Teisha, Mechanchilan Lishaot, Ben Esr, Uven Achat, Esrei Mishal Min, so what happens? Somebody who's healthy from the age of eight and nine should fast for several hours. Like, you know, wait, defer your breakfast until, like I said, until 10 o'clock or, or even a bit later. I guess some people would say skip lunch. And then from 10 to 11, they should complete the fast, at least according to Rabbanan, meaning that it's not a rabbinic, it's not a Torah requirement that they fast, but from a Rabbanan position, they should be fasting. And then from 12 years old, they should be, this is boys, obviously, should be talk, fasting by Torah law. No, I'm sorry, this is this is about girls, right? The girls who get to, you know, they at the age of 12 already, the benot mitzvah, bat mitzvah, so then they should be fasting midor reita. Anything before then is drabanan. Rav Nachman Amar, ben teisha ben eser mechanchinot on the sha'ot, ben achadisri ben shtimashri mishlimin midrabanan, ben shloshashri mishlimin midor reita, betinok. And the same you know, add a year basically, and you end up with a count for the boys. Now, this is where I think it gets gets a little bit even more interesting. This is what are you talking about? This idea 
that you could be that you can be fast, you know, that young. Rabbi Yochan says there's no obligation for kids to be completing a fast according to even rabbinic law, right? Rather, train them from the age of 10 or 11 to fast for a few hours. And then at 12, the girls have to fast. And then, of course, the implication, of course, from 13, the boys have to fast. So this is, as I say, this is the, the tension between when is there actually an obligation to fast younger than the age that you're supposed to be fasting, meaning as of bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah, or is, you know, and that's considered training. Or is training, you know, kind of easing into it by by pushing off the time that you would break your fast in the morning? So I, you know, this whole conversation with the kids is interesting because I think we, I always viewed it as a training. And for the first time I'm seeing in the Gemara here that maybe it's actually a chiv, which I really never knew about. Oh, I also didn't. And here's my embarrassing, you know, confession here. I have learned this Mishnah more than once before. I have learned this entire parak of Gemara before. And somehow in my head, I never connected the fact that there's a, there's a Mishnah about the fact that kids should start younger. I thought it was just a thing that we do. It's embarrassing. I know. The amount that a person can forget is really remarkable. Yeah. So it's, I, but again, I just never saw it worded that way. Um, I'm going to move on to the next Mishnah here, which now talks about pregnant women. So we have a case here with a pregnant woman who smells some type of food and basically has this tremendous craving that they need to eat. So you basically are allowed to feed her until she recovers. Um, right? Let's say we have a person who's ill and, you know, they need food for some reason uh, in order to save their life. So we... Uh, feed this person according to the experts. And we'll talk a little bit more about that on tomorrow's staff. Let's say you don't have an expert to ask. So presumably this is, you don't have a medical expert to ask. So basically the Gemara is saying, the Mishnah is saying, excuse me, like, just go ahead, feed the person. Don't worry about it. You don't need to like find an expert. If a person is sick and says they need to eat or they're going to die, you should go ahead and, uh, or it looks like they're going to die if they don't eat, you should go ahead and feed them. So an interesting mission because it's really telling us what cases do we have permission? Um, but, you know, specifically with the pregnant woman, this language of shatashiv nafsha, right? That somehow like her spirit or her soul somehow, you know, gets, I guess, like settled or something like that. That, that's how you are, you know, that's how you're feeding her. Um, and that there could be potentially something life-threatening in it. But again, it's not because she's sick, but it's more that there's this overwhelming craving, but maybe it would have the potential to harm the woman. So the Gemara then sort of goes on this tangent, which I, and you'll get a little bit more into, but I'll just read the beginning part of the Gemara here and then skip a little. So, so here we have a question. We're not talking about Yom Kippur, but here we're talking about a pregnant woman who gets this craving for food that is forbidden to her. So this would either be consecrated meat, right? Meat from a korban that she shouldn't be eating, that maybe only Cohen should eat, or the or or pig meat. She has a specific craving for those things. Right? So you would put a, a thin reed, you know, almost like a straw into the juice of the item. And you put it in her mouth. So the idea is, I think, that she gets some type of time, some type of taste of it. Hopefully that subsides her craving. 
and she can move on. Right? If it if her mind becomes settled, then it's good. If not, then we give her the actual juice itself, like the gravy from that item. Again, if her uh, mind becomes settled, great. Um, then if not, we're going to feed her the actual fat um, from that. Uh, we'll feed her the fat from that item itself. Um, because nothing stands in the way of life. Except for these three categories, right? One needs to basically have themselves killed if they would violate right? You know, uh, worshiping another god, participating in some type of forbidden sexual relationship, um, and uh, killing somebody else, bloodshed. Now, Ann, you're going to talk about that a little bit more. Um, but again, it's interesting to see that we're equate- equating this craving as some form of pikuach nefesh. And I think the understanding is, is that, you know, when, you know, women, when they're pregnant are in some type of precarious state, and it's not clear. I think this also is an understanding. It's not clear what the purpose of cravings are, right? Um, so some people would say from an evolutionary point of view that cravings in pregnant women, or let's say even I personally always had very bad food aversion. I could not eat any kind of meat or chicken pretty much while I was pregnant. And what I've read is, is that some of those cravings and aversions are actually a way of protecting the pregnant woman. Either they crave food that would be healthy for them to have, or like for women who particularly have aversions, sometimes it's keeping them away from food that may not be healthy, right? In other words, it's only until recently that we had refrigeration and could store food well. So that's why some women don't like, you know, like meat, for example, could have been rotten or something like that. So I just think it's an interesting thought to think about, you know, why we consider this to be pikuach nefesh. And then finally, later on in the top, the Gemara shares these two interesting stories. Um, about women who are pregnant. The first one is that, I don't need to read them inside, that there was this woman who smelled some food, a pregnant woman. She really craved it. So they came to Rabbi Huda Nasi, and it was Yom Kippur. And, you know, he basically says, Zilu Luchushula, Kipurehu. So he said, like, go and whisper to her. In other words, I think just talk to her very calmly. Like, remember, it's Yom Kippur. You don't need to eat. You're going to be okay. And when, they, they whispered to her and it helped. She stops craving the food. Um, and so he then quotes this pasuk from Yirmiyahu, where Yirmiyahu talks about that he was sort of, you know, formed in the room. Before I formed you in the belly, I knew you, right? That Hashem picked Yirmiyahu before Yirmiyahu was even born, that he was going to be a Navi. And, you know, and who was this woman? It was Rabbi Yochanan's mother. So what we see introduced here for the first time is that somehow what a woman consumes while she's pregnant actually may impact the baby itself. And so here they give this story that this woman was, you know, her craving was able to be subsided. And, 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 and the fact that it's almost saying like the baby was responsible for having that craving re- re- subside. And when you read it, I went back and thought like, who are they whispering to? Are they whispering really to the woman or are they whispering really to the baby? And so then they give a flip of that story that there was another pregnant woman. Again, it was on Yom Kippur. They go to Rabbi Hanina. He says the same thing. Whisper to her, basically, that it's Yom Kippur. They whisper to her. But but there she still wanted to eat. So she eats. And there they now they quote a pasuk from Tehillim from chapter 58, verse 4. Zur Rishayim Racham. 
right? The wicked are estranged from the womb, right? In other words, already people are wicked in their womb itself. So it's the baby who's having the craving, not so much the woman. And this man, Shabtai, who was a hoarder of fruits, meaning some of the Mepharshim explained that there was famine and maybe this person inflated the prices, uh, you know, and, and didn't feed people when they could, came out of this person, uh, came out of this woman. So I just think there's something a little subtle here. Like, is the pikuach nefesh for the woman? Is the pikuach nefesh for the baby? I think it's for both. But also, who is the source of the craving? And when you read the Mishnah, it seems the craving is the woman's. But here, these two stories seem to give real life to the baby by saying it's almost the baby's craving. And that craving, and whether or not it can be subsided, says something about the moral character of the baby itself. I think it's fascinating. I, you know, I certainly know of people who had aversions to foods that it turned out that the kid, you know, the kid in utero when he or she was born was then allergic to, which I find like a little bit, you know, I don't know, gives you the heebie-jeebies. Like, how is this possible? And yet it seems biologically it also kind of makes sense that as the cells of the fetus like mix in or whatever, if there's going to be an allergy, then it's good to be to, to have that aversion. Yes, and um, I've heard similar things also. Like people or somebody who ate a ton of their baby ends up being allergic to. So, uh, oh, that's yes, I know a story like that. So it's interesting. And I think the Gemara here in its own way is recognizing sort of that real connection between the mother and the baby. Yeah, it's really amazing. Okay, so let's go back to this very famous discussion of, I said back because, you know, you're then you just completed the daf for us. But the discussion that I want to talk about is a little bit pre, um, a little bit higher on the daf. Um, it is also anybody who is looking not on Safaria or in uh, Koran English translation, but if you're looking at a Vilna Shas and you look, or if you've noticed how short Amud Bet is, you can see that go back to Amud Aleph, you'll see that there's a Tosfot that takes up the entirety, just about the entirety of the Tosfot option, you know, there's a lot of Tosfot on Ahmed Aleph and even more on Ahmed Bet. And it is all about this little bit that we're going to be discussing. Um, and we're not going to be doing all the content of the Tosfot because really what happens on this Gemara is it's in on this stuff is that it's borrowing from, I would say, from Masachat Sanhedrin where this is really discussed. But this question of Pikuach Nefesh and the idea that, you know, we always say Pikuach Nefesh Dochet Akol, that there's that nothing is going to take the place of our prior prioritizing life and then we always say except for the big three what are the big three the big three are gilu meaning any kind of adultery or avodazara idolatry or shvichutamim any kind of you know murdering right and the discussion here gets into all of these three um and what i want to focus on now is just really the text uh, more specifically about well it's talking about how we learn one from the next so it starts with meaning let's say you're supposed to give up your life right the idea of what does it mean you should let yourself be killed rather than transgress so for just about everything any mitzvah any requirement ex, you know under most circumstances we would say you should transgress and you should and you should live right and you know this is this is a cardinal principle through, that saved many jewish lives over all kinds of times of suffering and so on. But in this case, it's not the only case. I mean, I know I'm, I'm leaving out the case of if there's a shmad, there's a decree against the religion itself, but that's a separate kind of case. Here, this is, this is the big three. 
Namely, these are the cases for which you are supposed to let yourself be killed rather than violate the halacha, the mitzvah. So how is it that we know that you're supposed to surrender your life rather than, ha- than you know, get into some kind of forbidden sexual relations or for that matter, murder, right? How do we know this? Now, this question of how do we know this is a very good Gemara question. I feel like for a lot of people, it feels intuitive. Like, what do you mean? Of course you can't kill somebody else. But the Gemara needs to have a proof for it. And the rationale of it is, I think, underlies why we have this intuitive sense of, of course you can't. Meaning as much as we care about self-preservation and as much as we care about life, at a certain point, we have to recognize exactly what this halach is going to discuss, what this Gemara is going to discuss. The Tani Rabbi Omer, Ki ka'asher yakum ish al-re'ehu v'ratzacho nefesh ken ha'davar hazeh. So there is this verse, it's in Devarim, it's spoken about in the case of uh, somebody who has raped um, some anara morsa, somebody who is betrothed. Uh, usually we translate erusin as engagement, but it really means a formal act of betrothal. And so what happens, then basically we're in a case, that's a case of, it would be a case of arayot, right? If somebody were required, you know, at gunpoint to then go and, sleep with this woman, then that would be a case of Arayot because she is betrothed to somebody else, um, like a case of a married woman. So the Pasuk in Devarim says, the verse in De- Deuteronomy says, as one, as a man rises up against his fellow and would slay him, Cain had also to in this matter. Also to in this matter, you know, so that's the Cain Hadavar Hazeh. So the same way that we learned about um, the murderer, so too we could uh, infer it to apply it to the case of the betrothed woman. Again, that would be a case of adultery or arayot, meaning illicit sexual relations. So then the Gemara so says, what do we learn about the betrothed woman from the murderer? Meaning, if we understand that the betrothed woman is clear, that that's a case of arayot, that she's supposed to be giving it up, be somebody who would be commanded to have relations with her would end up being really supposed to be giving up his life. So how do we learn from that to the case of the murderer? So this is where the Gemara um, kind of delves right into it. So we have a halachic principle that says if you learn the one thing about, if you learn something about the first case, then you can come to infer it about the second case. So the Gemara says this halacha is really about the murderer, right? That comes about the Nara Morsa. And then what happens is Nimsa, it comes to be found that it's really about Nimsa Lamed, it's really about um the let's say this right, about the murderer. Nimsa Lamed, Manara Morsa, Mitan Lahatilobanaf show. The same way that you would um treat the the case of the betrothed woman, Mitan Lahatila binafsho. You would save her. With his own life, meaning he's going to sacrifice himself for the sake of protecting her rather than do this violation. So to the murderer. Just as a murderer is a case of let himself be killed and not transgress. So to um, the the betrothed woman is a case of so so um Basically, we by learning the one case, we can then infer and apply it to the other case, um, which, again, is kind of like 
why isn't this just explicit and obvious? And the Gemara wants to make it very clear that it, this is grounded in psukim and it is grounded in logic. You know, there is no, you don't get to say, but I, but I want to save myself, right? That's not an option here because if this is really a case of making sure you don't violate the, the mitzvah, you don't transgress, and rather you should let yourself be killed, even though that's, you know, again, it's a kind of an unusual um, principle in halacha when so often we talk about priority of life. Now, the Gemara goes on, manalan. if we say that just as the rotseach, just as the murderer is a case of letting yourself be killed rather than kill another, and that's what we're going to learn and apply it to the case of the Naram or Sa, the betrothed woman, and know that in that case also he should let himself be killed, then what about the murderer? How do we know that you're supposed to give up your own life in the case of a murderer? Svarahu. And this, the Gemara says, no, this is just pure logic. You don't need verses to infer and apply and learn from something else. In this case, why? We talk about this case of somebody, um, the person comes before him, him being Rava, meaning this is going back to the discussion the actual halachic discussion from before, Amarle, or maybe it's actually in the other daf. Amarle, they say to him, Amarli, Mari Durai, Katle Liflanya, Veilo Katil Nalach. Some so they they give the case right. The master of the village, but the Mari Durai, the place of where I live, comes to me and says, "Kill so and so." This is Katale, that's kill in Aramaic. Leflania is like saying plony, like plony almoni, as, um, you know, Joe Schmo. You go kill so-and-so, and if not, I'm going to kill you. This is a very clear directive. Let yourself be killed and do not go and kill. Meaning it's a very clear psak, you know, as a response to the very clear directive. My chazit, and this is a very famous, very important, beautiful Gemara line. My chazit damididach sumak Who says, really, what's to, who's, who's to say, why do you see, my chazit, what do you see that damididach, that your blood sumak is redder, is more red. Dilma damidahahu gavra sumak Maybe the other guy who you're supposed to go pl- go kill, maybe his blood is redder. redder. So this phrase of, you know, you, one person's blood being redder than another is the question of, you know, whose life is going to be worth more? Who are you to say that your life is worth more? Meaning in the scheme of the world, maybe the other person's life is worth more. So therefore the the Gemara, at the Gemara level, in the commentaries, there's always more discussion over maybe there is a hierarchy of the value of life. But in the Gemara, it's very clear that any one person's life um, is, you, you never can assess whose one person's life is going to be more valuable than the other person's life. And therefore, it's logical to say, too bad, you don't go kill another person, because what if his life is more valuable, you let yourself be killed, because that's the way the setup happens. Meaning, don't don't mess with that status quo. It's very unfortunate that you're that it ends up that you would end up being killed from this. But you don't come to violate. You don't come to violate. You know, lotir tzach, not to murder, because um, to for the sake of saving your own skin. It's a very famous gemara. We're going to talk about it again in greater detail when we come to it in Sanhedrin. I'm sure, but it's important here in the context of Yoma, the context of Yom Kippur, because we're talking about pikuach nefesh. And really, eating on Yom Kippur is kind of one of those classic examples of, but life comes first. 
right? And so it's the counterexample, meaning all of these, the Naram Orsa, the betrothed woman and the Rotseach, the murderer, and the idolater who's not really discussed much here. These these three are the counterexample to the to strengthen, you know, how important it is that even eating on Yom Kippur, life comes first. Right. And I think, you know, we're going to see for this topic will we'll get discussed again. I don't have much of an insight here, but I think this is a you know typical topic that the Gemara sort of explores. What are the parameters one one does have to give up their life? And when do we make exceptions to those cases? And, you know, clearly in terms of what we're talking about, when we talk about Sanhedrin, it'll be within a different context. But I think the emphasis here on the DAP is, you know, I almost think it's brought in because here they have this Mishnah that is a very permissive attitude in a way, right? If you are pregnant or you're sick and you may die, sure, you can go ahead and, and, and go ahead and eat, um, which, you know, which is a violation of which if you do do, you don't fulfill doing Inui. Remember, we talked about this yesterday. It's a positive commandment. You get kares. Um, so, you know, th- this is this is also sort of interesting. I think they're sort of in a way want to like bring it back from another extreme. I think that's exactly right. Meaning you want to say you can eat because she's got a yen to eat. Well, let me tell you, there are other halachot that are not so simple. That you can just you can just get rid of them for the sake of whatever you want to be doing, right? Exactly. That's exactly what I was trying to say, right? So it's it's wants us to see, you know, what what are the two ends of the spectrum on this? Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. 